0: Welcome to the Next Track, a podcast about how people listen to music today. I'm Doug Adams, and I'm Kirk McElhern. We self-produce the Next Track podcast and want to keep it ad-free, so we rely on contributions from listeners for support. You can help us by making a regular donation via Patreon.
1: Visit patreon.com/slash The Next Track, and thanks. This week we're very happy to talk with Oliver Krask. Oliver joins us from the north of London. He is the author of the recently published biography, Indian Son, The Life and Music of Ravi Shankar. Oliver, thanks for joining us.
2: Hi, Kirk, and uh, hi, Doug, as well. It's great to be on the show.
1: You know, Ravi Shankar is one of those musicians who all my life has kind of been in the background. You can't have grown up at, at our age, having known the Beatles young and having heard the sitar on Beatles songs and then having seen Monterey Pop and all the rest, having seen his work with Philip Glass and, and the many things that he's done, but I knew nothing about his life, absolutely nothing. And you have apparently made the first major full-length biography of him, but you knew Ravi Shankar quite well, didn't you?
2: Yeah, I did. Um, I, I first met him in 1994, um, and I had a rather wonderful job. Uh, I was in a publishing in my first publishing role at the time, and I was uh, given the dream job of working with him on what proved to be his um, last autobiography. So he wrote three books himself, two in English, one in Bengali, and this was his last, um, you know, the second of the English ones. And um, so I I don't know quite what I'd done to deserve it, but it was an amazing uh, experience, you know, and I got to know him very well through that, and we clicked. You know, it was just fortunate that uh, you know, I mean, it was, from my point of view, it was easy because he was fascinating, very likeable. He, 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 he was completely open to, uh, to, to, to me, to talking about his life. You know, he didn't have a problem working with people who were younger because he had young students, for example. I think he was just very good with people of all ages and backgrounds. And uh, as I say, fortunately, we clicked and uh, managed to keep up that relationship with the rest of his life. I was fortunate that way.
1: Were you familiar with his music or Indian music in general before that time?
2: I would say in general, but I was no kind of expert at all. Um, I was uh, in some ways in the right place at the right time.
1: I've always been fascinated by Indian classical music. And I think the word classical is important because in the West, when we just talk about classical music, it's all the Germanic... French, Italian music. It ignores the classical traditions of other countries. And, and I was thinking the other day, reading the book, I wonder what the iTunes store in India says when it lists genres for Indian music. Do, do you know? Do they list specific Indian genres, say Bollywood and classical, or what do they call this music for them?
2: Um, I, I, I don't know about iTunes specifically, but the term is used there. Yeah, I mean, they would separate out... Um, classical from Bollywood, but um, it was actually for Ravi Shankar, it was a a big thing throughout his lifetime. You know, once he started uh, coming out to the rest of the world with his his music in the mid fifties, he started fighting little battles because, you know, naturally there wasn't very much knowledge of uh, his art form in the rest of the world. And uh, he, you know, he repeatedly was explaining this is a classical art form. Uh, it's not boat music. Uh, it's not a sort of popular music. It's, you know, it's different from our film music, which is very, very popular. It's like the pop music of India. Uh, this is a classical art form. It's got a great history. It's got great complexity. Um, and, um, but you know, he had to kind of fight battles again and again to get it seen that way. And um, so I think, and, you know, he said this himself, but I think he really saw the world of music having two mountain peaks with Western classical music and Indian classical music and for him those were the two peaks. I mean of course there are other great traditions all around the world and he was interested in them as well but he really kind of wanted Indian classical music to be seen as a as a a, 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 a peer or a rival you know a, an alternative um, that had you know equal uh, claim to a uh, greatness and complexity and and so on.
1: Well early on I think people approached it as 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 a curiosity, right? That the sort of the concept of Orientalism of, you know, what have they got that's really cool that we can look at and get into. But it's true that throughout his career, it, it seems reading your book that he just was striving constantly to impose is not the right word to make that music have value in the West, to get people to understand it. And even if a lot of people probably went to the concerts and never heard that kind of music again afterwards, he was positioned in such a way that he was able to make the music taken seriously.
2: Yeah. He, um, he really felt filled with a, a kind of mission, if I can put it like this, you know, but you go back to his childhood, he had this extraordinary, um, Uh, youth, where he was um, at the age of 10. He he, uh, was whisked off from Varanasi, the city he grew up in in India, to Paris to become part of his uh, brother's dance troupe. And they became a real sensation. His brother was a famous dancer and they toured Europe, they toured um, North America with huge success. And um, they also toured around India and other parts of Asia. But this really gave Ravi a kind of you know, a kind of um, uh, experience and education that no other Indian classical music musician had. He um, had this experience of, of presenting Indian arts to the world. I mean, that, that dance troupe they performed what we now think of as classical dance, uh, essentially. I mean, it was a, it was a uh, that in itself is an interesting question, but they were forming uh, classical music, classical dance, and presenting it as such, and he also you know so he got a he got a, a an understanding of what it was like to do that on a stage in the west um, and at the same time he also heard western classical music, he heard jazz uh, he, you know folk music and so on and and you know for somebody who was like a sponge soaking this you know he had this you know natural um, curiosity and and you know brilliance. Um, that was incredible education. And then when he then, to uh, cut a long story short, he goes back to India, immerses himself as a musician. In the troupe, he'd been both a dancer and a musician. He gives up dance, he then immerses himself in music. The sitar is his instrument. And then he, you know, he emerges then out of that as a star in India in the late 40s and early 50s. He's, you know, he's filled with this mission Uh you know, of the greatness of Indian music, and he has a sense that he can do it. He can explain it to the rest of the world.
1: Right, because as you said, he started very young explaining things to people and meeting people, in some ways, reading your book, I get the impression that he's a kind of a zelig, that he met sort of every single famous musician from the early days through the end of his life. And, and there's this quote that maybe it's your publicity team circulates about, he's in a car with John Lennon, and there's a Cab Calloway song on, and John Lennon says, oh, this is Cab Calloway, you don't know him. And he says, oh, yes, I saw him in 1933 or something. And yeah. At the yeah, and, and as you <laughs> see the names and places, the people that he met and knew, I mean, it's fascinating, musicians, artists, authors, but was this in part because of the curiosity of the young Indian man, and then later the Indian musician, that was still a rarity until we get up into the 60s? Um,
2: was it a curiosity, other people's curiosity about him?
1: Yeah, that, that he was a curiosity because there weren't other Indian musicians, or there were very few in the West
2: think there's an element of that but i think that it i mean i find it quite uncanny how he keeps turning up at these extraordinary moments in history you know right from back in the 30s when uh, you know they're, they're touring uh, weimar germany in 1932 as yeah hitler is fighting parliamentary elections in germany i mean it you know you just couldn't imagine it and then and then he goes to the cotton club um um, incidentally, it was George Harrison, not George John Lennon, who was Ah,
1: in sorry. Yes, that's right. Because it was Harrison that he was yeah. friends with, worked with, recorded yeah. with, etc. Yeah.
2: But th- that's a true story. Harrison told the story himself. Um, yeah. And then again, yeah, he says so he shows up at all kinds of places. Like, you know, uh, he starts becoming famous in India, really around the time of Indian independence. And, um... Uh, You know, and then he's in Moscow in 1954 as he starts going out to the outside world, you know, just just in the height of the Cold War, uh, you know, Europe and then North America in 1956. Um, I don't know. There's something quite uncanny about how he keeps going. It is.
1: Yeah. 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 I mean,
2: right right through to all, you know, the, the. concert for Bangladesh and so on, you know, it's, you know, these important historical moments.
1: So. Yeah, and, and so he meets Coltrane, he's in, what, in 1961, he's in the village while Dylan's performing nearby. Did they ever meet? I don't remember if you said they actually met back then.
2: Um, I don't think they did back then, but uh, yeah, he met Bob Dylan, obviously, um, a few times later. Yeah. Um,
1: there was no particular connection with Dylan. No, it, but it's just, just him being in every place. It's almost as if yeah. he was emitting something to all these other people
2: well i think as time goes on you know i mean it's not just um uh uncanny kind of zelig kind of effect um you know say by 1961 when he's playing town hall in new york you know he's obviously caught created a bars. it's his second time as a fellow artist and um uh, you know people went to see what was going on you know it, you know you know and and he obviously had a brilliance
0: about him. you know I think that people very early on picked up on that you know it seems to me that wasn't it wasn't it in the early sixties where in, that's when uh the 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 folk group started paying attention to that sort of thing and it I mean he just kind of rode along on that in this kind I'm talking about in the United States because I seem to remember um seeing a lot of Ravi Shankar records when I was a little kid that friends and family friends had. Um, We didn't, you know, it was mostly there for flavor. It wasn't there because they were, you know, enamored by Indian music. It was just seemed kind of like the trendy thing. It was the next trendy, folky thing to do. And that's the kind of, those are the albums by Shankar that I remember until he turns up again in my life on the concert for Bangladesh. But uh, is that what was happening? His fame was growing at the, starting in that point in the 60s in the United States?
2: Yeah, I, I mean, I, I would sort of take the starting point for that really in 1956, which is when he first started as a solo artist with his sitar to Europe and then to America. You know, he arrives in New York in 1956. And it's, uh, the, the first uh, community to really latch onto him was the jazz community. I mean, there's uh, some amazing photos of him December 1956 where he's playing at Marshall Stern's apartment in New York, which is a Great jazz historian. And, uh, you know, in the front row, you've got Dizzy Gillespie, you've got Quincy Jones in the second row. Um, there's a whole host of, you know, the jazz community there. And they've already heard about him. You know, he's been in New York about a week or two. And um, he's creating a buzz. You know, this guy is, you know, you've got to go and see this guy. Um, early on, you also get classical musicians picking up on him. Um, famously, Yudi Menuhin.
1: Menuhin, yeah.
2: Menuhin, um, he, he met actually in, in Delhi. In 1952, when Menuhin went there on a on a tour of his own, and he was introduced to Ravi, and it was a you know it was a revelatory moment for Menuhin. Benjamin Britten, uh turns up in Delhi in 1955, and similarly, you know he uh, sees Ravi playing a recital. You know again, he's kind of taken to see Ravi. You know, he's the kind of one that people want to see. Uh, so, uh, so when he came. Um, out in fifty six you've got the jazz communities you've got the jazz communities they're starting to take an interest and yeah I think by the early sixties you would say the um uh, folk musician you know the folk artist you know he's you know i suppose they see um Indian music as, a, as a, a in a way as a kind of different um, folk tradition
0: yeah sort of a roots sort of a roots tradition that they might pick up on themselves you yeah. know
2: and, you know, that would, that, that you know, then Ravi had to explain, no, it's a classical music, but we also have a folk element to it. You know, and sometimes he would draw on folk melodies and so on, um, which is allowed within the kind of classical uh,
1: system. But one thing he also did is before his concerts, he often introduced them with an explanation of the music to help people understand it. And that... I can imagine, and even on some of the records, you have that. I can imagine that that's very helpful to people for whom this was very foreign at the time.
2: Yeah, and I think he was particularly good and um, uh, intelligent about doing that. That you know, he he found that when he did explain the music, um, you know, briefly to uh, to foreign audiences, that they got a lot more out of it. So he would introduce the instruments, you know, the sitar, the tabla, the tantora, and some of the rudiments of the music. Essentially, ragas and talas which are the melodic forms and the, um, the rhythmic cycles, um, which are the kind of building blocks of the music. And um, you know, he he was he was good at explaining himself. He was a great communicator. Um, he spoke very good English um, and French as well. His childhood, uh, so you know, he he had that ability to communicate like that. And you know. Above all, you know, he also had a great um, sense of presentation, you know. you know. He took such care over how you, he presented concerts. There'd always be the incense burning at the side of the stage, you know. Uh, he'd always be dressed in beautiful silk cutter, uh, uh, you know, took care about the kind of presentation of the stage. A kind of professionalism, you know, which had come from his brother, really. And, uh, you know, many hadn't really got that because there wasn't really such a tradition of concert going in India um, at that time, um, especially uh, in North India. Um, so it's fascinating how during the, you know, the middle of the 20th century, there's all these kind of changes going on within the whole uh, format and presentation of Indian music.
1: And He's right
2: there at the heart of it.
1: And in some ways, he helped spur those changes. He was, what, 27 years old when he got an important post in Indian radio. And I think at the time in your book, you say not many people had radios, but it started growing around that time. And Indian music prior to that, it was sort of like Baroque music. It was only in courts for princes and, and the like. And then it started breaking out into concerts. So, he also shepherded that in many ways. And I guess in India, since he had such recognition in the West, that helped him in India as well, didn't it?
2: Yes. uh, That's a bit later. I mean, if if you go back to that amazing moment when he starts bearing on all India radio, and he was appointed as their director of music, I mean, it's extraordinary. I mean, radio was quite late to boom in India. Uh, Basically, the the British didn't really do anything to encourage it. So it's only when they left, the Indians started um, really rolling out radio across the country. And just at that moment, he comes along, you know, and has this? He sees the opportunity. He understands that this can be a mass art form. Um,
1: it, it had been
2: a, a kind of courtly art form um, that had been in decline in the early 20th century, anyway. Um, but it's only really when the sort of mass media come along that something replaces that. You know, I think he was. You know, he sort of emerged at a time of change. You know, between the old and the new. And um, you know, he was. I think the most important figure in that kind of uh, change uh within india you know that's that's what i've argued in the book it, you know it, as you say in india he became very famous also because he, he took the music abroad and became a star in the west and i i kind of think that Indians have slightly forgotten that he was bigger within india in shaping the art form there um uh, i you know it's understandable that they might forget that because it was a long time ago and his fame in the West was made him so, you know, it was so stratospheric that it made him so much bigger a name everywhere. But I think it's really important to remember what it was like back in the late 40s and the 50s, and he'd already become this kind of national star at the time when Indian classical music for the first time can become a national art form because it just wasn't possible before that. You know, there weren't the mass media that enabled it. You know, uh, Indian. Classical traditions have essentially been local or regional. Uh, in the early 20th century, it starts changing. No, probably in the late 19th century, the railways, I suppose, are the big thing that start people start moving around and exchanging ideas and listening to each other. But, you know, I think it's really only with radio, you know, that um, it really changes because you can now, everyone around the country, they've got a radio set and listen to some musicians from the other end of the country playing and it becomes a national form.
1: And it's a shared experience that they can discuss afterwards.
2: Yeah, yeah. So that's... um, uh, And that was when he was uh, becoming a, a national star and, you know, he really sort of understood that. He was director of music at All India Radio. He was playing himself on the airwaves and he was also kind of gatekeeper for um, loads of other artists, you know. So he had this... Uh, great opportunity to present the best of Indian music to the nation, you know, and he loved doing that he, you know, he really appreciated other artists and art forms uh, he was very into the South Indian system Carnatic music system as well as the North Indian Hindustani system, so there's kind of two systems within India, but he made a big point of um, promoting both and incorporating aspects of he was a North Indian musician, but he incorporated aspects of South Indian into his music
1: So he played the sitar, which was this fascinating instrument, and I remember when I first saw one, it might have been on the, was it on the cover of the Concert for Bangladesh album? Was it a picture of him? No, that was a a starving baby on the cover, but maybe inside there was a picture of him with it, and can you explain what's so special about the sitar, kind of how it works, and you're talking to someone who's played guitar for a very long time, and you say in the book that he sort of invented his own sitar or his own version of the sitar that he had someone made. What was special about the changes that he made?
2: Yeah. So the sitar is, um, it's the most popular, um, classical instrument in the North of India. It's a North Indian tradition. Um, in his model, he had six main playing strings. So like a guitar, um, although they quite often have seven. Um, uh, there's also, um, a track of, Thirteen sympathetic resonating strings which run underneath the main string, and um, they resonate and they give the kind of characteristic buzz that we must, we know uh, from the sitar. So it's a um, uh, it, 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 it's it's a long necked lute. If you want to get technical, uh, the the main sound box is a gourd It's made of a dried vegetable, so it's a hollow sound box. Um, it's not a very loud instrument. Um, so, um, uh, you know, it always has to be um, uh, amplified in you know these days in a, in a live uh, concert hall. Um, and what's also very characteristic about the strings is that there's a lot of bending that's done. The, the, the frets that it has um, are curved and there's, a, there's, a, there's room to bend a lot. So he would bend up to sort of five um, tones. You know, that would be a, it's a very typical thing to do. in, in, oh. in this there's a lot of bending. And
1: so you're not you're not pressing the strings onto a fretboard like you would with a guitar or another Western string instrument.
2: Well, they're, they're, they are frets, but they're raised frets. So you're not pressing right. them down onto the um, right back. Um, and um, uh, it, you know, in, in many respects, it's quite similar to a, a, a guitar in that it has um, you know each each uh, each fret is a, uh, a semitone. Um, but they're also, you can move the breath. you can do fine tuning, and um, uh, uh, so uh, where were we? Uh, uh, yes, there's a lot of bending in it because the music music has a lot of embellishment within it. Um, you know, I think that uh, in Indian music, the journey between notes is very important. Like, it's like really where the emotion is. It's not. It's not. If you think of Notes in uh, on a piano as being like islands, jump from one island to another. It's not really like that, you know. You basically move between them. You bend, you embellish around a note, and that's that's very characteristic. You know, I think we would uh, when we hear Indian music, that's something that's really characteristic. Of it.
1: What what's the big bulgy yeah. thing at the top? Is that another gourd to resonate?
2: Yeah, uh, that's a second resonator. Yeah, and um, that's uh, that's characteristic of his model of sitar. It's one of the characteristics. Not all sitarists have those. Um, so it's just a bit of extra resonance. Uh, you asked about what he had done to develop it. Yeah. Um, that, that second sound, um, sound box is uh, one aspect of it. Another thing was that he, um, uh, he, he really wanted to emphasize the bass sound of the sitar. Uh, so he had, you know, very strong bass notes on it. And if you listen to... Um, uh, some other sitars, uh, they don't have as much emphasis on bass notes. And uh, he actually, when he was a, when he was a uh, learning sitar from his guru, Araludin Khan, he also played an instrument called the Surbahar, which is a kind of bass version of the sitar. And so the idea was to kind of incorporate some element of that, because he really loved those kind of resonating bass sound uh of the lowest strings that he would play during this very meditative opening section of a raga, the alap, and that I think is perhaps the most characteristic thing about his sound uh, is is those those bass notes. On, on. and so so he he uh, he changed the strings there, um, uh, and as I said, he added the the resonator, and uh, you know it's my, minor things, uh, other minor things, but you know it really. He was, he was adapting the sitar. He wasn't inventing a new one. But uh, his model has become one of the two most popular models of sitars that are made now. You know, a lot of people will point to that one on the shelf. I'll have a Ravi Shankar model.
1: Uh, it it uh, looks like a big, heavy, complicated, expensive instrument.
2: Yeah, <laughs> yeah they're, 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 they're uh, beautiful objects as well. I mean, they're complicated. Yeah. They're all handcrafted with... with Beautiful finishing and uh um yeah, I mean, seeing his own sitars, i mean there's there's just works of art in themselves amazing yeah, surprisingly light actually
1: real, oh, I guess because the gourds are hollow, so the necks hollow yeah
2: it's all hollowed out the neck, so you get yeah a
1: oh. bit of that. so he was at the forefront of what we now call world music, and i I find it interesting that you know it's. Western music and world music. You make this division. And I've been learning to play the Shakuhachi for a couple of years. And my teacher is an ethnomusicologist, which means she studies the other music. And I always find that interesting. I guess that's never going to change. But for him, coming from India, where his music was, was the sort of set point, looking at Western music and being aware of it, there's always that strange idea that we have that world music is somehow inferior. That that on iTunes it's classified as world music whether it's from whether it's Felakuti or ravi shankar or someone from south america and and everything gets lumped together and it's kind of a a sad thing about music that people aren't that people aren't curious enough to make that distinction and to appreciate it
2: yeah i mean this was a, a big thing for him you know he didn't like the term ethnomusicology uh, he preferred world music, which sort of came along at about the time when he was, oh, I suppose mid-career for him. You know, he preferred that. I mean, you, you know, even that. You know, a lot of people don't really like that term, as, as said. Um, so he was, as I said earlier, he he was fighting these battles. You know, for Indian music to be taken seriously and to be treated on a level with Western classical music. That's really how he saw it. I think that, yeah, we're still having these issues today. I'd like to think that we're. You know in the West are gradually getting better but you know uh I hope so anyway, you know that we're you know we're able to listen to other musical forms um with open ears you know i
1: I think there's a lot more mixture there's a lot fewer the borders are blurring these days where you know, younger musicians can sample different types of music and be influenced by different types of music in 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 ways that, you know, when we were young, it was in the world music bin in the record store. Mm. It wasn't mixed in anywhere else. But I think the most interesting thing is how he both played Indian music and then played this kind of hybrid, like the concertos that he wrote for sitar and orchestra, the work he did with Philip Glass. It's... It's almost as if he was there to allow world music to mix with the West, that he he was very strongly behind his own music, but he was more than willing to make these mixtures and work with other musicians to adapt it. And And that's a really laudable career that he's had in, in order to do that.
2: Yeah, I, I see it a little bit differently, actually. I think the more I... I um, uh, studied and thought about him i think that really what he wanted was you know when he when he does when he gets involved with these collaborations and these other forms essentially he's playing indian music through other um types of instruments or, or structures you know those it's still he's still using raga melodies and and uh indian rhythms um i think that's really important with him I, I, you know he wasn't a he wasn't a you know, a fusion artist, that wasn't, you know, I mean, there are a few things he did that I would put under the, you know, I think we could argue our fusion, but for the most part, the overwhelming part, he was really what he was interested in was playing Indian music, and you don't find him trying to play Bartok or trying to mm-hmm. along with Indian musicians. I mean, when he did, actually, did, there's a couple of uh, recordings he did with jazz musicians, and he's not on them. It's really interesting. He writes music for them, and then he mm-hmm. doesn't, on them. He, he's the director, um, the composer and the director, you know. Uh and that I think is really important to him. He understood that, that wasn't that wasn't his expertise, you know. He didn't read Western music particularly well. You know, he could he could read it, but he wasn't a wasn't sight reading. Um, and um that wasn't what he wanted to do. He wanted to, to persuade the world of you know, the greatness of Indian music. But he was like also this uh you know, composer, innovator, he wanted to explore to see what could be done uh, with people like Philip Rath, um, with, you know, those classical works that he did, sitar concertos, also one symphony and an op- opera and few duets, and working with, you know, great uh presidents of Western classical world, you know... Um, but always you know I think at the root of it, there's that that wish to you know to be playing indie music here. You know, and so he's kind of
1: in charge, he's the composer This has been really fascinating I really recommend this book I knew hardly anything about him and as I said, he's a zelig. He's all these people he meets, all these events he's involved with, so it's called Indian Son, The Life and Music of Ravi Shankar You've listened to our podcast, you know that we do a segment called Our Next Tracks at the End, we don't usually ask our guests, but if you had one Ravi Shankar album for people to listen to to get to know the music, what would it be? Ah, Good question,
2: um off the top of my head, why don't we go for uh, Improvisations, which was a, a 1961 album that he recorded for World Pacific in the USA. So it's that period where he's, um, uh, you know, starting to be discovered. And um, so i one has to a kind of variety of uh, uh, music, including what, the first of those jazz compositions, uh, and also his great theme for... Papa and the film which we haven't talked about, but it was
1: a, right because he was also a, a composer for films for Satyajit Ray's great trilogy.
2: Exactly. So this is his most famous theme from that trilogy. Um, and then if, uh, if you, and there's also a South Indian piece on that side, if I remember rightly. But then if you turn the, if you flip the side of the record as you did in
1: those days, um, <laughs> yeah, I was just about to say we don't flip <laughs> records anymore. Yeah.
2: Um, there's an absolutely wonderful performance of uh, Raga Rageshri. Uh, a full uh classical raga so that's a great place to start he's at you know, he's completely on top of his
1: form there I, I shall link to that in the show notes oliver krask thank you for joining us
2: thanks kirk thanks doug
0: we are an indie podcast we don't have sponsors we don't belong to a network but we still have all the expenses that other podcasts do and if you'd like to help us cover those future listeners would salute you you can become a patron by heading over to patreon.com slash the next track. It's time now for our next track picks.
1: Kirk, what have you got? Since we were talking about world music in this episode, I wanted to go back and find something that I considered to be world music. In fact, if you look on iTunes, it's called World, the genre that it's in. Sometime in the early 1980s, I heard a song on the radio by Thomas Mapfumo. He's from Zimbabwe. And there was this extraordinary percussive guitar sound that, really grabbed me. I remember going out down to a record store on Bleecker Street in New York and I found one of his records and it was really cool. It's a kind of a Afrobeat sound if you know Phil Akuti's music. You've got brass sections, you've got a really interesting polyrhythm, but it's just this guitar that, that grabs you the way he plays. The record I'm going to pick is Mombasa. I don't know if it's the same one that I bought back then. If you're on Apple Music or Spotify, you can find a whole bunch of records by Thomas Mapfumo. I'm going to listen to this as my next track and see if it's the same thing. And I mean, this is music that makes you move. This is really, this is dancing music. So at a minimum, I'm going to enjoy the rhythms. Doug, what about you?
0: I don't think I've kept it a secret that I'm a Fleetwood Mac fan, but only the early Fleetwood Mac, before they got commercial and, you know, uh you know how it normally is. But anyway, I'm really into the blues end of uh, Fleetwood Mac, Peter Green's Fleetwood Mac, the original band. Uh Their first album is really great. It's called Fleetwood Mac. Their second album is called Mr. Wonderful. Uh And by all accounts, when it came out, it was uh, not very well received. I'm not really sure why. Uh I would guess it because... It's a really lousy recording. What they tried to do was uh, give it an old-timey sound by not recording anything through the board, but essentially just putting mics up in front of the PAs and trying to record it, like a club date. But it doesn't really come across that way. It's really kind of muddy, and the performances are really good, uh, but they're just kind of like the devil-may-care attitude about it, which is why I like the record. The other reason I like the record is there are four different versions of... What I'll call Dust My Broom, which is a, a famous Elmore James song that goes, you know, that one. They do four different versions of it. Interestingly, uh, conventionally, when you play Dust My Broom, there's a particular solo you also have to play. So each of the songs has the same solo, just different words. And the other <laughs> funny thing about this record is that uh, the, the cover is a, a very unusual picture of Mick Fleetwood. Uh, Holding a puppy or a doll or something It's just a really weird record Uh, If you're super into Fleetwood Mac and the early blues stuff I think you'll enjoy it It's also the first album that Christine Perfect shows up on From uh, Chicken Shack Later, Christine McVie So it's, it's an important document for that too But it is a funny, murky sounding record But I like it Fleetwood Mac, Mr. Wonderful is my next track This was episode number 182 of The Next Track. Thank you very much for listening. You can start or join a conversation in the comments section of this episode's show page at our website. You'll also find links to some of the things we talked about in the show notes for this episode. Just visit TheNextTrack.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at NextTrackCast. And don't forget, you can support The Next Track by making regular donations via Patreon. We're ad-free and self-sustaining. So your support is what keeps us going. Visit patreon.com slash the next track. I'm Doug Adams. And for Kirk McElhern, thanks again. We'll talk to you next time.